Welcome to Voices of Experience radio show and podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the Voices of Experience podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts. No promotional fees have been paid to anyone appearing on Voices of Experience. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Voices of Experience on Kixie AM 880 and KKNW 1150 AM. We're live right now. And if you're listening to this on my podcast at some future date, that's great too. It is November 15th, 2023. My name is Paul Casey, Eric Crema, and Eric Ryder, both at my shoulders. No, Present. not really, but across the way, <laughs> let's put it that way, with us today. So, um, again, I think we have a real diverse show today of, uh, you know, activities. One person said to me about the program, what he liked about it is that, let's say he doesn't particularly care for one particular subject or it's not something that interests him greatly, but the next one will. That's right. That's what we kind of try to do here. It's like laugh-in skits. Remember those? You know, some were great. Some yes. were not so great. That's very <laughs> You just true. had to wait a while. Right, right. <laughs> uh, gosh, that was a while ago. Um, well, so today uh, we have one feature with Michael Farquhar, and um, he has said something I think uh, is pretty interesting. No matter how bad things get, they could get worse. Not exactly <laughs> inspirational, no. but again, he's got a point. So he wrote a book on this, and it's called uh, More Bad Days in History. He wrote a previous book called Bad Days in History. So that's kind of what he's about. He's going to be on shortly, so I, I won't go any further. That sounds like something my dad would have said. Right. You know. I'll give you something to cry about. Yeah, there you go. That's a great one. Yeah. Listen to this. Now, Eric, you have something we're not going to be crying about, and it is um, the Compass Housing Alliance with Michael Bailey. That's right. President of Compass Housing Alliance, brand new president, Michael Bailey, is going to join me for a quick conversation. We're going to talk about what the organization does, and is there... Really, is there hope for a resolution here with all the homeless issues we have in and, in and amongst the Puget Sound region? I'm very interested to hear what he has to say. Great. I, I know you were pitching this to do it, and I think it's great, but I think sometimes you hit the housing thing or you know, a homelessness situation, and certainly it's tragic in many sure. ways. But I think people are getting very frustrated going, it's been going on a long time. Are we really going to solve this? Yes. You know, or, or you know. More along those lines. Sometimes I just, I personally, and I know I speak for many people, are so frustrated at that. So it will be good to hear what he has to say. We're also going to have an Eddie uh, Chuckalay, and he's a Cherokee Indian who grew up in uh, Muskogee, Oklahoma. Okay. And uh, he's an incredible individual because he, like, lived 15 different places, grew up, had a very hard upbringing, but... He was lauded as a great writer and um, great storyteller. Oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah, he's really come through a lot. Meandering Musings with Neil Peterson. Today, he's going to be talking about personal notes. Remember those? You would oh, get yeah. those in the mailbox? Yeah. Well, he's going to talk about that. I think he's going to think we should do more of that if yeah. I could think about what Neil will say. But I'm sure he'll have a, a good way to frame it. I came across in our office an old pad of, do you remember those pink slips where you could write who called into the front desk? 
Oh, sure. And you you would come back from a, a business lunch. meeting or you, lunch. You'd have three. Yeah, yeah, exactly. them out and look at it. It's just no one will see those again. You know, it's just not going to happen. Right. No, that's very true. You think about all those things that we took for granted or how what we lived with that no yeah, longer what we exists. Live with. Um, let me see. I just talked about that. Voices of History Today. This is for you, Eric Ryder. Tacoma had a big day this week, but it happened in 1875. I don't think you were around. No, I, I wasn't. I feel like I was. but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I came in was... today, and all of a sudden I see the whole uh, mechanism here is being torn apart. What, obviously, it got fixed. Yes, yeah. We're in good the, shape. The board. Okay. Good here. So anyhow, that's coming up uh, soon. And uh, timeless classic for today. This was the number one song, you know, by this particular site that said the top 100 songs of the 1970s. Hmm. So I went to number one, looked at it, and I said, I'm going to run with this today. Got it. And I know you be impossible to make any prediction or what that is There's based on that song. a lot of summary. big songs in yeah, the 70s. That's some right. there. I'm not saying I necessarily agree with the. Um, you know, verdict here by this particular poll. It's a catchy song. All right. Yeah. But, uh, and it was very popular. But, yeah. We'll, do you, we'll do you remember what later. the criteria was? Was this best selling or just epitomizing the 70s or uh, anything like that? You know, I don't. Could oh, have been okay. subjective, the author. Yeah. Just, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. I can't answer that question. Uh, let's see. Solopreneur. We'd like to talk about people thinking about going into business for themselves. Uh, I'm going to talk about is self-employment for you, some of the criteria there. Um, so, and the other thing is we're going to give a free book out. Eric, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Is self-employment for you, a book I wrote five or six years ago now. I can't believe it's that long. Yeah. And I actually, I'm looking for my notes on the phone number. That's horrible. It's one thing. That's the one sheet. I was, I was thinking to myself, Paul, don't toss it my way. Okay, you and know I was what? sending the energy, you, but you have it. You have the. You technology. gave me the cheat sheet. I stole it. So <laughs> right. that's what I did. I wanted to put you on the spot. I today. got a lot of phone numbers in my head. Four two five six five three eleven sixty six. I had it. That's right. Eleven sixty six. So if you call four two five six five three one one six six now, and you are the first caller, leave your name, phone number, and address, and you win a copy. Of the book. That's right. And um, I'm getting good feedback on that. You. Big question. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I try to do. It's a question. I'm not saying you should do this. Some people say, oh, you need to run your own business. Not necessarily. It depends on where you're at in life. A lot yeah. of things go into that. So I'm throw the question out there. And by the goal of the book is when you're through with it, you say, I can do this. Yes. Or you get through with the book and go, you know, not now, maybe another time. That I think is what is music to my ear. Well, even if you just purchase it on Amazon, you're going to save yourself a ton of money if you get to the end and say, actually, it's not right for me. Very good point. You I've know? known a few people And now you've got a chance for it for free. Yes. 425-653-1166. And as you say, phone number, address, and your name. That would yeah. be great. We will not give any of that information out. All right, so uh, we're rolling here, and um, I'll tell you what. Let's just uh, come back with my interview with Mike Farguar in just a moment. All right, just talked about uh, Mike Farguar, but uh, just to let you know he 
is a former writer and editor for the Washington Post. And then again, I said at the beginning, no matter how bad things get, they could always be worse. But today I'm going to talk about uh, with Michael about his latest book, More Bad Days in History. What attracted you to do this book? You have a large background in journalism that goes deep. But all of a sudden, you veered off to this to do a book. First of all, uh, bad days and now more bad days. But what prompted you to do this? Well, it's two things, Paul. It was, um, you know, a lot of my journalistic career was actually history-focused. I used to write for The Post, and I would write stories about history that would put current events in, in some kind of context. That was kind of my gig at The Post, so it was a natural progression to write history books. National Geographic came to me and said, what about this idea that they had about writing one bad day in history for every day of the year? And I said, I love it. It's a, I mean, that's a great idea. And they, you know, they only had a few suggestions that I avoid the obvious, like the sinking of the Titanic. Everybody knows that's a bad day. It's nothing uh, clever uh, about that. Although there are tangential bad days, like the uh, parents uh, associated with a well-known event, like the parents of those heroic band members that went down with the Titanic getting billed by the company for their uniforms. That's the bad day in this collection. It's a good suggestion from them, and it was one that I ran with, and it, people seemed to like it, and that's why we did the second one. Could you give us some of your favorites? It, they, the, what's so great about this, I think, is that the, they, they run the gamut. I mean, you're definitely chronological by day, but it's bouncing all over time. So it could be, you know, 1933, one day, and then... Uh, 1064, the next. Beyond that, it's all sorts of different kinds of history, military history, uh, royal history. So it's very hard to say which is my favorite. I mean, I don't know whether it's General Cornwallis calling in sick to his surrender because he was so mortified by the defeat by, uh, at Yorktown, or Chris Jeff throwing a tantrum after being denied a, a trip to Disneyland, or President Jackson's parrot getting kicked out of his funeral for using foul language. I mean, these just these wonderful little nuggets of history that you never learned in history class. They're all my favorites. I know that sounds lame, but it's the truth. I wouldn't have them in here if I didn't like each one of them in its own way. If you're not interested in sports history, just bounce to the next chapter, which is the next day, and you'll, you'll be reading about a Roman emperor or a British king or, a, you know, an honorary president or any number of different kinds of, uh, different kinds of history through time. Looking at history, I sometimes get uh, chagrined, I guess, that people don't understand history or don't care about history as much as they should because, again, I've lived long enough now where I've seen where we've made the same mistake several times. And it just seems to me that there's an attitude, if it happened before I was born, I don't really care about it. I hear that and I go, wow, that's uh, kind of um, short-sighted. But in this sort of format that you do, do you think, and I'm hopeful, that people will read this because it's so interesting and it will pull them in and maybe make history more interesting to people? Do you have that as a goal as well? Absolutely, Paul. I mean, I, I, I do understand a lot of people got turned off on history by having the wrong kind of teacher. When we were, you know, a lot of people were young, it was that pedantic date memorizing and you know, dry, dry events. And I like to think that people love a good story about humans behaving uh, sometimes at their, at their least dignified. And so, yeah, I hope that reading some of these tidbits, you go, oh, wow, this is just, this is a great story. It doesn't need to 
It doesn't require a master's in history. It just requires um, an interest in storytelling. A lot of the names will be familiar even to people who've been turned off by history. Do you have like a, a big takeaway? Is there some thread that goes through all these stories? Not all of them, but the people behaving badly that kind of you see a consistent pattern. I mean, is it like they're isolated? They don't, they think the world is not going to come crashing down on them. Do they just get to a point that they don't think that these types of things will eventually catch up with them? Foremost, it's people being people. Humans are humans and always have been. It's, we're all subject to the same frailties. Sometimes they're played out on a world stage, or in the case of, you know, medieval royals, they're played out on a world stage with the idea that they have a good divine right to behave that way. So the behavior somehow gets worse. But we all have a tendency, to, we, uh, you know, to get a little caught up in ourselves. Well, people getting ca too caught up in power aren't going to do anything to, to keep it or wield it unfairly. Maybe it would be best described as the human nature that we're all familiar with writ on a larger stage and probably with more exaggerated qualities. So what prompts bad behavior? I think it's just being human. I was trying to think of an analogy of what you do and tell me if I'm anywhere close, but I'm thinking like I'm watching a play and the characters do all their jobs very well. The curtain goes down, then they become people. And then the curtain goes up, and that's kind of what you look into. Right, exactly. Um, it's people being, it's the curtain, pull up the emperor, whatever, the, uh, who was that guy in Oz? The wizard. Oh, the wizard, uh, yes. When Toto yeah, went up and I mean, pulled the curtain back. Right, and, you know, that can be good in some instances. Um, I, I, you know, I talk often about the fact that <clears throat> I've often explored the foibles of the founders, of our founding fathers that they were testy and annoying and didn't like each other very much, a lot of them. And yet, look what they accomplished. I mean, the stories of their relationships are entertaining because they were so eloquent in their insults, et cetera, um, or, and in some cases actually dueling with one another. But that at the end of the day, uh, they really got – they did something major. <laughs> they founded a nation. And so I think by taking them off their pedestals of, uh, you know, of – perfect demigods and making them human, it makes what they did all the more impressive to me. So there is a larger picture to all this. I think it just it, it adds color and context to the big picture. I think it's a nice supplement to, um, to the study of history. It's not, it's not a scholar. It's scholarly in the sense that it's uh, completely researched and reported. But it's not scholarly like that you're going to get this in-depth perspective of a certain portion of American history or a certain portion of European history. You're going to get tidbits. And they're, as I said earlier, tidbits that cross the spectrum of time and of topic. Who do you think this book would be for? Who did you get the most satisfaction from that would really enjoy this book? Well, I think a lot of people have, uh, have complimented me for the fact that it made a great gift for their, you know, for their history buff in their life. Um, I think it's people who really do appreciate history that they're not necessarily um, <clears throat> in it for the scholarly side of, of history. But it's good for people, for example, who want to read before they go to bed, but don't want, you know, often fall asleep before they finish a chapter. You won't fall asleep because you'll you'll already have a couple chapters under your. Uh, your belt by the time you drift off. Uh, it's great for, you know, your daily constitutional. I think it has a uh, – it's, it's great for young people who uh, 
a kid like I was that, you know, read the, the book of lists and books like that. We're like, wow, that's so cool. And it does. It sparks it may I mean, hopefully it sparks an interest in the um in an interested kid. So I think it's uh I've that's been the most gratifying to answer your question directly. Kids uh have seen young, not little kids, it's a little too dark for little kids, but you know, teenagers have, have uh I've heard a lot have have enjoyed it. That's again Michael Farguar and um very enthusiastic about his subject and I really enjoyed that interview with him. By the way, his book is called More Bad Days in History, and you can find it by just Googling More Bad Days in History, and it will come up. Welcome to today's Voices of History. 80% of New Orleans, including much of downtown, is underwater. The Big Easy's famous Canal Street, living up to its name. Apparently, a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center in New York. I just saw another plane coming in from the side. You did. I did. That was out of the Yeah, so that's view. the second explosion. Gosh, when I hear that again, 9-11. Yeah, I mean, Benny did a really good job of putting that all together. But, mm-hmm. yeah, it was just that moment when people thought the first plane hits and then, why? what a terrible accident, and then the second one hits, and then 100%, you now know this was on purpose mm-hmm. altogether. Mm-hmm. So not quite so dramatic today with some of the voices in history we're going to discuss. But on this day in 1777, the Second Continental Congress approved the Articles of Confederation, the uh, precursor to the United States Constitution. Okay. All right. I wouldn't have guessed that. No. On this day in 1867, Wall Street started ticking the Edward Callahan's new invention to the Edward Callahan's new invention. They started taking current stock prices by telegraph. It revolutionized the stock exchange mm. by transmitting information in real time. Think about it for a moment. I never appreciated the telegraph as much as I should have until one day I really thought about it. Yeah. But two things. One is that 1867, I would have thought that was about 1910 or mm-hmm, something, mm-hmm. but it happened so s- soon. But to think that the, you know, really, when you transmitted by telegraph, that did pull the world together instantly. And up to that point, the telegraph, none of that was happening. The um, Pony Express. Yes. And the, when I was reading about that, that only lasted about 10 years. I didn't realize it was that short of span because the telegraph came in. Yeah, changed everything. And on November 15th, that would be today, 2001, Microsoft releases the Xbox gaming console. Bill Gates feared that gaming consoles would soon compete with personal computers. So, Japanese company and Sony and Nintendo dominated the field. So, Bill made a move to get into that. In 2001, and it's been very successful, sure. obviously. Sure. I feel like gamers have their the games they like, you know, the machines they like. Right. Like, like are you, you know, are you an Xbox or are you, a, you know. Yeah. And you know what? I've never played one of them yet. They're fun. Anyhow. Addicting. <laughs> On November 15th, 1977, President Jimmy Carter welcomes the Shah of Iran to Washington. The next two days, they meet, converse with each other, discuss ways to improve relations, and then the two leaders, political fates are further intertwined. Of course, a couple years later, 
when the Shah was overthrown in Iran and took American hostages in Tehran. We could do a whole show on that, but sure. that was you know, pretty amazing. I, as I recall, after they had met, the Shah was ill, and then uh, Carter invited him to the United States to have surgery and whatever was wrong with him. I can't remember that. And that's when the Ayatollah instructed the American embassy to be that, taken okay. over. And that lasted what, over 400 days. Pretty amazing time. So on a more local level or front, on a bleak rainy day, November 13th, 1851, Denny Party landed on Alki Point. The group might not have survived the first winter without the aid of the Duwamish and Suquamish tribes led by Chief Seattle. And as we all know, well, I don't know if we all know, but eventually Seattle was relocated downtown to the eastern shore of the inlet where downtown Seattle prospered. But it was started on Alki. I kind of thought the other day, I never thought of this before, even though I live in West Seattle. What if they hadn't moved in downtown Seattle was with West Seattle? Yeah, Maybe right. came mm-hmm. in that way. But so it would really be downtown. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. And uh, all right. The big question about Tacoma. On November 12, 1875, the Washington Territorial Legislature incorporated Tacoma. That's right. All right. I did not have that. Eric, Eric was nodding. He had it. And on November 11, 1889, Washington was admitted to the Union as a state. Territorial voters who lived in the state prior to that requested entry in 1878. But Congress said, eh, we decline your request at the time. So it took a while, but we finally became a state. Do we know where Tacoma got its name? What? Yep, named after the mountain that we know as Mount Rainier now, uh, was originally called Tahoma or Tacoma, oh. as uh, some people pronounce it, and so it was named after the mountain. Okay, there we go. And there's still a movement to change Mount Rainier's name back to Tahoma. Interesting. Good. You got a fount of knowledge over there. Yeah, I tell you, you should do this segment. <laughs> You had to run for council down there in Tacoma. <laughs> be the smartest guy in Tacoma. Yeah, there you go. Um, so all this is courtesy of the History Channel and This Day in History, and more locally, the ones that I do here, finding out about Tahoma and Tacoma, other than Eric, is the historylink.org. It's a fountain of great information. So I think uh, you should really enjoy perusing those sites. So, uh, okay, we'll be back in just a moment because Eric's going to be visiting with uh, his guest in just a second. You have been listening to Voices of History. If you have historical events that you would like to share, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. And I do want to welcome Michael Bailey. He's president of Compass Housing Alliance here to today's Voices of Experience. Michael, how are you? I'm doing great, and I appreciate the opportunity to join you. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. Uh, congratulations on your position. You are a newly elected president there at Compass Housing Alliance. Yes, it's exciting, and the organization itself is amazing. It's a familiar face to a lot of folks here in Seattle because we've been around for 100-plus years. But I myself have been here for just about a month, and I'm hoping to add to the next 100 years if I can. Well, I hope you will uh, be able to have great success as they have, as you said, for that amount of time. I understand that uh, Compass Housing Alliance has nearly 700 units of affordable housing in nearly 230 enhanced emergency shelter beds. 
So what is it that makes Compass Housing Alliance different when it comes to supporting individuals? Well, as you mentioned, you know, we're a provider with nearly 700 units of affordable housing and nearly 230 enhanced emergency shelter units. And it's critical that we have those resources available throughout the year. I think what makes us different is our capacity to love. And love is actually one of the values that we have here at Compass. Our focus, it remains consistent, which is really to offer stable housing and supportive services to individuals experiencing homelessness or housing insecurity, but we're infusing our work with a deep sense of compassion and care. Mm -hmm. We understand that the people that are facing or experiencing homelessness or housing insecurity, that there's a need for consistent care and assistance, and that goes for anybody. And that's the individuals that are more chronic with their homelessness and individuals that just recently fell into homelessness. I, I think what makes us different is our staff and our volunteers. They're dedicated to providing that ongoing support, ensuring that the individuals have access to safe shelter, but also to resources and assistance. And that allows them to be successful on their journey, um, rather it be towards stability or self-sufficiency. It's for them to define, but I like to believe our commitment to serving with love sets us apart and helps us create a supportive and nurturing environment for everybody that we do serve. Now, I know you don't have a crystal ball in front of you, but uh, there are <laughs> politicians and organizations really trying to tackle this overall problem throughout the Puget Sound region. Right. And for a lot of us as citizenry that are just on the highways and byways, we see a lot of tents and we think about it and we hopefully donate and help where we can. But in your opinion, do you think this is a problem that can be solved here in the Puget Sound region? I think we have to believe that it can. And... You know, it's, I like to believe that there was a point in time where everyone was excited about the opportunity to ensure that right, which is housing. Mm -hmm. And here at Compass, we truly believe that housing is a right. And to your point, when you're driving up and down the interstate or you're driving throughout the city, it's not hard to lose sight of that, that vision and folks are starting to lose hope. I think with the work that we're doing here at Compass, we have an opportunity to restore some of that hope. And I truly believe, much like the other folks here at Compass, that we can solve homelessness, but we have to do it together. It takes a collaborative approach and everyone has an opportunity to play. That's our elected officials, that's our city departments, it's also our county, state, and federal partners. And here at Compass, we're fortunate enough to have an extended community of volunteers, of donors, but also ambassadors. And what we're hoping that those folks can extend to the community is an extension of hope. You may not always see the change, but I guarantee you, if you go to any of our sites here throughout the Puget Sound, you'll see some of that life-changing magic happening in the background. And for those who are close enough to see that work firsthand, it's a privilege. And for those who may be a little bit more distant from the work, I would just encourage them to reach out to Compass, learn a little bit more about what we're doing. But if you want to help make that difference and you want to help eliminate homelessness, partner with us. And there's plenty of opportunities for how to do that. Feel free to reach out to learn a little bit more. Well, on that note, uh, what's the best way to learn more about Compass? Would it be the website? I think the website is an amazing first step, but 
we encourage you to reach out and have a conversation. Okay. I'm happy to make myself available to folks that are interested in the complex problem or opportunity, because I don't want to call it a problem. It is truly an opportunity that just hasn't been leveraged yet. If you're interested in talking more about that opportunity, feel free to reach out to us directly. We'll set up time and we'll let you know what we're doing to help make a dent in this opportunity. But we'll also spell out some of the many opportunities. And some of those opportunities may be here at Compass, but it may be with some of our partners. It takes a village, it takes a community, it takes a collective of folks with shared values to really make a meaningful difference in this work. And we're always looking for people to join that community. Wonderful. Uh, people in our community obviously experience homelessness year-round. What's the difference for their experience around the holidays? And it's, it's a great question. And to your point, people in our community do experience homelessness year-round. But the experience of homelessness during the holidays can be particularly challenging, and that's for several reasons. First, the holiday season tends to highlight the contrast between joy and warmth. Hmm. Many people experience the holidays with their families. And the harsh reality for those without stable housing is they may not have direct access to the family members that they love the most. And when you look at this contrast, it, it can elicit a lot of feelings and it can unearth a lot of feelings. And some of those feelings may be loneliness. It could be isolation. It could be despair. And for the folks that are going through that, we make it a point to prioritize love. I led with the fact that here at Compass, what sets us different is our capacity to love. So as we engage the holiday season, we're always looking for opportunities to share that love and ensure that both our residents and our guests have both the support, the resources, but also the love needed to get through those difficult times. I like what you said to kick this all off beyond love. That's obviously essential, but also positivity. Because you can right. approach a problem with negativity and you're pretty much guaranteeing failure. But if you come right. at it from, from a, a good place, love, and then add in a positive attitude that this could be an opportunity to help these people have better lives, wonderful lives. Who knows? Sky's the limit, right? It's a perfect example. And I often talk to folks about uh, Roger Bannister, who you know is credited for breaking the four-minute mile. And I've chatted with some of the electeds here in Seattle about this as well. And up until that barrier was broken, it was deemed impossible for a human to run a sub four minute mile. And it wasn't just popular opinion. You had scientists that would suggest this. You had professional coaches. Um, you had professional athletes that just said it was impossible. And along came Roger, broke the record. And it's not so amazing that he broke the record. I think what's amazing is what happened afterwards. I think less than a year later, someone else broke the record. Right. And within three years' time, you had several people. And at this point, I believe there's college and high school athletes out there that are breaking the record. So we didn't evolve. We didn't grow an extra leg between now and then. <laughs> but I like to think that Roger challenged the idea of what's possible. And I'm hoping here at Compass, we can do the same thing with homelessness. Thank you, Mr. Michael Bailey, President, Compass Housing Alliance, for your time. Really appreciate it. We'll have you on again. Awesome. I appreciate the opportunity, Eric, and happy holidays as well. Same to you. And if you want to learn more, compasshousingalliance.org. That's compasshousingalliance.org. Get involved. 
Well, Paul, to what you were saying prior to the interview there, you know, it is a big problem. It's not not only just here, across the nation, and um, everybody's attacking it from a lot of different angles. And I did like what he said about you have to remain positive. You have to believe it can be remedied. You have to believe you can help people have better lives and keep pushing, pushing, pushing. Because once you let off, I think that's when you're really in danger here. Certainly. And, and these are humans we're talking about, just like me and you. Mm-hmm. You know, so yes, uh, everybody's got some issues, uh, including myself. I've got my own things. So you need to get past that. And so I liked what he was saying there from the compassion stance and his optimism for we will find a solution if we all work together. Right. Right. It's a work complex together. problem. It is a very complex so. problem. Anyhow, well, good interview. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that to the show, Eric. So um, let's move on right now to, uh, gosh, Neil Peterson and um, his musings for today. He's the founder and CEO of the Edge Foundation, helping students with executive functioning and those challenges that they have. ADHD is another phrase for that. And he's an author of a book called The Edge on the Subject. Very successful entrepreneur. And um, he's been doing this, uh, Neil Peterson his blog. He's been doing it for like, uh, gosh, 12 years now. And he started the podcast not too long ago and you could hear it, you know, pretty much all the time. You just have to, uh, you know, Google, you know, meandering musings and, and listen to that. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But today let's pick up with the one, uh, he just recorded not too long ago. And I really enjoyed, I did hear it and it's on postcards. No, 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 this one's on personal notes. Personal Excuse notes. Excuse me. The postcards was another time. I believe it is postcards. Oh, we're we'll, back we'll to find postcards. Out. <laughs> postcards. It- Whatever happened to postcards? My childhood friend Clipper and his wife Ellie are leaving next week for what appears to be a wonderful boat cruise down the Danube River in Europe, starting in Germany and ending in Vienna, Austria. When learning about this trip, I instinctively said to Clipper, send me some postcards. Then I realized that I have not received a postcard in years, nor have I sent one. Holy cow, whatever happened to postcards? A relic, a thing of the past. Yes, they do sell them in some convenience stores, but who buys them? I get it. Why send a postcard when you have so many other options? A postcard takes some effort. You have to find the postcard to purchase. You have to put pen to paper and write out your comments. And there's an art to postcard writing. You have to know the snail mail address of the person you're sending it to. You have to write that down on the postcard. Then you have to find the right postage to place on the postcard, which can be a challenge depending upon the country you're traveling in. You have to purchase the postage and affix it to the card. And finally, you have to find a post office or somewhere else to send the postcard. A lot of effort. Now compare that to taking a picture on your phone and forwarding that via email or text messaging to the email or text number that you already have in your phone. So easy. So easy. Or just post a picture on your favorite social media platform. Nevertheless, I have to say that I miss postcards for several reasons. First, I just like getting something in my mailbox. Anything will do. It just feels good to open the mailbox and have something in it. Second, when I get a postcard, I know that someone has taken the time and effort that I talked about earlier to send it to me. 
it's something that I know took some effort and it created a personal connection for me. Third, I'm dyslexic and a postcard has a real advantage for me. Its size dictates that the writing has to be very short and sweet. Fourth, I love pictures, especially ones with lots of color. Postcards fill that bill. And finally, I love the tactile feel of a postcard. It's bendable, but sturdy. It has some character to it. You can see that there are a lot of reasons that I am somewhat mourning the lack of postcards today. However, I just realized that there's one more reason why I really miss postcards. I have a postcard collection. How can I add to it if I never get a postcard? Now, the truth is that I have not touched my postcard collection for probably some 55 years or so. I haven't even looked at it. In fact, it's in a storage container in a self-storage facility to be cleaned out at some future time. I'm sorry that I cannot access it right now so I could share with you some of my old postcards. Still, I spent some time on creating this postcard collection at an earlier stage of my life. I was somewhat proud of it. The cards in it brought back memories. It had some meaning. It was a way of cataloging different destinations, trips, and eras. It turns out that there's a word for the study and collection of old postcards. It's called Delteology, from the Greek Delteon, which means small writing tablet. It also turns out that there's a word for those who are really into the frenzy of collecting postcards. It's called postcarditis. For those of you that are interested, the oldest continuously run postcard club in the United States is the Metropolitan Postcard Club of New York City, founded in 1945. Ironically, the first known picture postcard was sent in 1871 from Vienna, where Clipper and Ellie will be alighting at the end of their dramatic Danube boat cruise. Bottom line, I just realized that I miss postcards. Okay, Neil misses postcards. All right. And I missed the uh, thing about his personal notes, too, so I'll air that another time. Again, that's uh, Neil Peterson and his podcast is Meandering Musings Podcast, and you can just Google that, and you'll find a way to find it. Let's see. Let's move into a couple things um, right now I just wanted to talk about and bring up. Did you guys, I'm going to ask you both a question here. Do you use the self-checkouts when you're at the store? Yeah, sometimes. Eric? On occasion. Do you like them? or I like them if I don't have produce or, like, alcohol because they always have to wait for someone to come over, and I always screw up the produce. Right. <laughs> Mine is if you get a clearance item, they, oh, yeah, they need to send it. over somebody anyway. So sometimes it's easier to just go through just the go regular through the line. line. Yeah. I, I find it interesting. I do most of my shopping in the Metropolitan Market in West Seattle on um, Admiral. And what I find interesting is like if I see the person there, the checkout is not long. I'll go over there. Right. But I, then I do that, and there's no one in front. I just saw this like a couple weeks ago. And she was just sitting there by herself. And then I see all these people lined up to do the checkout. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the uh, you know, the self-checkout. And I just thought, thought that was very interesting. That's and, herd, herd mentality. Right. Or, or, or something. I'm going, wow. And then I did see, hear something on John Tesh show. 
about a month ago, mm-hmm. and it was a theory that a lot of people use the checkout when they buy things that they don't want other people to see, like maybe mm-hmm. you know, oh, I didn't five think about that. baby Ruth candy bars or <laughs> a bunch of stuff. They go, you know, I got all the good <laughs> vegan food, and then they go, and they throw it in there, and they don't want to be judged when they walk through the person going, oh, okay, there's a big chocolate cake <laughs> there. Okay, have fun with this. But the reason I bring it up is that it looks like Walmart, Costco, and other uh, chains are rethinking self-checkout. Some oh. are pulling it out. And there's a place I never heard of, Booths, and it's in a uh, British uh, supermarket chain. Mm-hmm. They're pulling it out. They're shutting it down. And Walmart's saying the same thing. Costco is kind of saying the customers don't like it, and we may you know, wind this thing down. That's I bet why. there's a lot of theft. Well, that's uh, probably that true, too. too. Yeah. It's hard yeah. to keep an eye on everybody if you're one person with five right. checkouts happening at once. Right. Very true. Interesting. I uh, just want to mention this briefly that uh, we had Stu Elway on the show last week, and um, he had another Elway poll come out today, and this is very brief, but uh, he said, according to the latest Crosscut Elway poll, this is fresh off the press, um, more than 60% of Washington voters think Donald Trump is corrupt, and 70% think Joe Biden is too old to be president, and around three and five feel pessimistic about the major issues such as gun violence and immigration. Thir- 35 or three, three, three to 5%? Three, three and five. Three oh, people and oh, five. I so see, that would be like percent. 70%. Yes, yes. Are very pessimistic about issues such as gun control and immigration. I certainly am pessimistic about gun violence. I mean, I've been hearing this since I was 12, mm-hmm. you know, and it's still, you know, a horrible situation. But I, I think it's, uh, anyhow, that's just a snapshot. There's more in depth to the poll, but that we don't really have a lot of time for that right now. So, what we should probably do is transition into. My next interview, so let's just do that right now, and um, I think you'll find this one very interesting. As a teenager, I guess you would have conflict of your Native American roots and then trying to grow up in a small town in the Midwest, that conflict. How did you deal with that? What I consider my hometown is Muskogee, Oklahoma, and that's where it was a lot more uh, racially diverse than other towns in Oklahoma. So I didn't really have that much experience. Uh, with racism growing up. The book that you wrote, The Indian Kid, what led your inspiration to do this book? It's funny because uh, I wrote a collection of uh, short stories for a doll called Cheyenne Madonna. And in some of those stories, when I was writing them, they were, uh, it brought back a lot of memories that I had in growing up years. But those episodes didn't really fit in the stories I was working on, so I kind of filed them away. And when I finished that, I picked those uh, stories back up and uh started writing them and i sent one into my agent to see what he thought and he loved it he said if you have more of these that you might have a, a a book a memoir so that's how that project got started give us just a few of the highlights of the book starting off uh, in a dramatic fashion i ran away from school in the first grade on the first day I had never been to school before. I had never been to kindergarten or Head Start, which my uh, grandparents home basically homeschooled me. But I was the only only kid in class that knew how to tell time. Anyway, uh, later on that morning, uh, the teacher pulled out a big paddle and put it on her desk. Well, that kind of terrified me because I'd never seen a paddle before, first day in school. And I'm thinking, well, what's that for? You know, we're all going to get paddled, or do we get paddled every day here, or what? 
<laughs> so uh, I, at lunch, I took off, and my mom was shocked. Like, what are you doing home? Don't you eat lunch at school? And uh, I didn't tell her about the paddle for fear I was going to get paddled. She would paddle me. So she took me back to school, uh, dropped me off, waved and everything. And uh, there was a kid that meet, met me at the door, and he goes, the worst thing he could have said was, you're going to get that paddle. And uh, I said, no, I'm not. And I kept on, I went on out the back. So I took off. Uh, they, had, they let the entire 12th grade in Colera, Oklahoma, the entire senior class, uh, let let them out to look for me. So uh, Yeah, you know, I'm just going to say, my, my uh, first day of school, I forgot my lunch, and I thought that was traumatic, okay? I think yours was a little bit uh, over the top on that. Please go ahead. Well, uh, I'm not especially proud to say this, but uh, I was, uh, me and my friend were like uh, two of the top kids in class. We were uh, top English students, all straight A's, but we wound up breaking into the school, snuck into the uh, high school gym and stumbled into the band room and uh, trashed the band room and made the big news in the paper, the little local paper there. It was a weird deal of walking around town and seeing seeing the story at the uh, you know on the on the on the front page of the paper on the rack and that didn't last long. And keeping it secret didn't last long because a homeroom teacher said uh, everyone pull out a sheet of paper and write down what you know about the, the vandalism in the band room over the weekend instead of saying well, I don't know anything. All the other kids did because they they didn't know anything. I made up this story about uh, I heard some racket and I saw some people uh, riding around. Anyway. It, it got me caught, and uh, I got expelled from that school. How did you recover? Well, what happened next? Well, I had got, I transferred to a nearby school. I didn't leave town, but uh, I wound up going to a school like 10 miles down the road. <laughs> I just stayed in school and got more involved, uh, started playing. Well, I've always, well, I was always a baseball player, but I became involved in the uh, school team. Just kind of put it behind me by staying focused on uh, extracurricular activities. And then when I moved again to the uh, Muskogee, where I finished high school, joined the team there. My coach was a, a former sports writer, and he uh, had me take his journalism class. And he saw that my future life in uh, journalism or writing about sports rather than playing it. He referred me to the local daily newspaper, and I started writing sports when I was 16. That's pretty amazing right there. Now, your memoir that you've written, and I understand it's getting really great reviews, your main message is about family and community. Can you speak uh, to that? And was that your mission when you wrote the book? Yeah, it was just showing how, uh, you know, if you're Native American, you have this uh, usually big family. Even though we moved around a lot when I was a kid, it was my grandparents. Was, he was full bug tree, a lot more stable, and usually lived in the same house, all, the same town at least. So I was always able to go back there if, if things were going a little bit too crazy. Uh, my mom and sisters and brother, uh, you know, cheap would wind up having to move because my stepdad got a job somewhere. And that might not pan out. He might be there a month and change his schools again. But my grandma could always go back to my grandma. And how about growing up in Oklahoma, uh, Muskogee, and then you ended up writing a program at Stanford University. Before I let you go, could you tell us a little bit about that? I got tired of uh, the newspaper business and writing sports because uh, I had been doing it since I was 16. So uh, around age 28 or 29, I decided to go to this art school for Native Americans in Santa Fe called the Institute of American Indian Art. And while I was there, I heard this kid talking in the library about, man, I'm on the long list for the Stegner program at Stanford. I hope I get in this year. I caught him in the library. I said, I heard you talking about this statement. What is that? And he told me about this. It's a creative writing fellowship for poets and fiction writers. And uh, 
We were just about to start Christmas break, and I had never heard of this program. So I looked into it, and anybody can apply. You don't need a degree. You don't need to be a certain age. Uh, you just send in samples of your writing. So I got my uh, samples together over that Christmas break, and I got in on my first try, and that kid's never forgiven me. And why is that? He had been trying for years to get in. Every year I see. Okay. Got it. And he kept, yeah, he kept thinking he was getting, getting close and close, and now I'd never, I'd never even heard of it. And because of him, I applied and got in right off the bat. And he, he kind of like, oh, it was like congratulations and stuff, but you could tell he was like kind of teed him off. Well, that would kind of tick me off too, Eddie. Right. But, I did, but, I did but congratulations. That's pretty cool. Well, I, did, I didn't take his because he was a poet. I see. All right. <laughs> so you can work that out. Now is your yeah. comeback to him. That's great. Okay. Uh, again, final question is, this is directed to a young adult audience. What do you hope they take away from reading this book? Well, a couple of things. One is that the uh, life experience of Native Americans is much more varied than a lot of people think. A lot of people think, oh, okay, they live on reservation. Everyone works at a casino, stuff like that. My life like a totally opposite from that. And also to be like, oh, I did with my hiccup of uh, getting expelled from school. I didn't let it turn into a life of crime, I guess you could say. I uh, stayed in school and uh, that turned out for the best because, you know, I met the coach who uh, influenced my life greatly. And that was my, you know, going out for baseball, you know, even though I don't have any aspiration of being a pro or anything, the coach saw other talents within me and uh, guided me uh, on to uh, a journalism career, and that's how uh, all the writing started. All right, the book is called This Indian Kid, a Native American Memoir, and all you need to do is Google This Indian Kid. Again, the uh, just Google this Indian kid, and you get a copy of the book. So we are out of time for today, and uh, wanted to mention a couple things before we go. First, this may be the last Apple Cup a week from Saturday, and uh, wanted to uh, get some comments from people about their favorite Apple Cup. Whether you're a Husky or a Cougar, what your favorite Apple Cup is, just keep please, or just keep your comments short, 30, 45 seconds, and why, or something like that. What's your favorite Apple Cup? And that number to call, and then Eric's going to just talk about something for a moment. But both um, things we're talking about now, you can call 425-653-1166. Again, just leave your message, your favorite Apple Cup. We'll get it on the air. Eric? Yep, Apple Cup 425-653-1166. Love to hear your memories. And also, if you want to receive a copy of Is Self-Employment for You, if you're the first caller, just dial 425-653-1166. Leave your name, phone number, and address, and boom. The first caller gets it. You're a winner. Right. There you go. Well, I think that's about what we have uh, for in store for the listeners today. Hope you enjoyed the show as much as we uh, enjoyed bringing it to you. Thanks to Neil Peterson, Eric Crema, Eric Ryder, and, of course, Benny Mathers for helping pull everything together. Quote of the week. If you think you are too small to be effective, you have never been in the dark with a mosquito. I like it. Betty Reese. This week's Timeless Classic is coming up next. You'll hear the whole song on Kixie, part of it in KKNW, but you will not hear it on my podcast because of licensing issues. Have a great rest of the week. This week's Timeless Classic 
And arguably, I suppose you can argue whether this was the most popular song in the 1970s or not, which is what I found out when I dug through the list of the top 100 songs of the 1970s. This was number one. One of the artists said that this song, and I quote, it is often difficult to know what will be a hit, but this was an exception. Another artist calling it one of the songs where you know during the sessions that this is going to be a smash hit. Well, let's get to it then. From 1976, ABBA, Dancing Queen. 